Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. Welcome, this is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 434 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Salute 2, Mars 4, 5, 6, and 7, and the Tang Ceremony. Back on episode 323, we began a study of Salute 1, which was the Soviets' first space station that was successful to a point. The major failure occurred when the crew returned to Earth after their mission. Their Soyuz 11 vehicle lost pressurization during re-entry and the crew, not wearing any suits, died. This occurred in 1971. We are now in 1973. And I want to spend a little time on Salyut 2, the next Soviet space station. If you haven't heard the Salyut 1, Soyuz 11 story, I urge you to listen to episodes 323 through 335. At this point in 1973, the Soviets were attempting to fly two types of space stations. The first was the long-duration orbital station, scientific version, called DOS. Salyut 1 was a DOS-style station. The other station was a military spy station equipped with a machine gun, and it was called ALMAS or OPS which stood for Orbital Piloted Station. ALMAS was a response to the United States Air Force MOLE program. Thus, the MOLE program, although it was never used, was the reason the Soviets developed and paid for the ALMAS-type space station. However, for Soviet security purposes, both types of Soviet stations, DOS, DOS, and ALMAS, were called Salyut, in order to conceal the existence of two separate space station programs. The Soviets wanted the world to believe that the Salyut stations were purely scientific in nature. Just in case you were curious, the ALMAS military-style space stations that were launched into space were named Salyut 2, Salyut 3, and Salyut 5. 
The DOS scientific type stations were referred to as Salute 1, Salute 4, Salute 6, and Salute 7. Now a little history on the development of ALMAZ. Vladimir Jalomin at uh, OKB 52 Design Bureau was the one who promoted ALMAZ as a response to the U.S. Air Force's Manned Orbiting Laboratory Mole Project, as I mentioned before. Now, Mole had been widely publicized in the U.S. press in the early 1960s, which provided Chalomi plenty of material to use to lobby for a Soviet response. The Almaz space station program involved three major components. First, an orbital piloted station, OPS, module. Now, this formed the space station itself. Then there was something called the functional cargo block, or FGB, and that was intended to be used as a resupply craft for the station. And the third thing was the VA spacecraft itself. In the West, we called it the Merkur spacecraft. It was intended as the launch and return vehicle for the crews. And interestingly enough, it was designed to be reusable for up to 10 flights. Salyut 2 was 14.55 meters long, that's 47.7 feet, with a diameter of 4.15 meters, that's 13.6 feet, that's maximum diameter, and had an internal habitable volume of 90 cubic meters, 3,200 cubic feet. At launch, it had a mass of 18,950 kilograms or 41,780 pounds. A single aft-mounted docking port was intended for use by the Soyuz spacecraft carrying cosmonauts to work aboard the station. Two solar arrays mounted at the aft end of the station near the docking port provided power to the station, generating a total of 3,120 watts of electricity. The station was equipped with 32 attitude control thrusters, as well as two RD-0225 engines, each capable of generating 3.9 kilonewtons, or 880 pound-feet of thrust, for orbital maneuvering. Just for comparison, ALMAS was much smaller than Skylab. Skylab was 25.1 meters long, which is 82.4 feet. Skylab's diameter was 6.61 meters, or 21.67 feet, with a pressurized volume of 351.6 cubic meters, or 12,417 cubic feet. But Almaz was bigger than the proposed manned orbiting laboratory, the mole, it only had a pressurized volume of 11.3 cubic meters, which was 400 cubic feet, 
and a diameter of 3 meters or 10 feet. It was, however, longer at 21.92 meters or 71.9 feet. Much like its mole Gemini counterpart, the initial ALMAZ space station design called for the launch of an ALMAZ OPS space station and a VA Mercur return capsule containing its initial three-man crew mated together as an OPS slash VA atop Chalomi's UR-500 Proton rocket. As with Mole slash Gemini, once in orbit, the crew would access the lab through a hatch in the heat shield at the bottom of the VA capsule. After an extended stay of 30 to 60 days of military observation and photography, the crew would return to Earth by way of the VA return vehicle. Unlike the American mole design, the Soviets designed the Almaz to be recrewed and resupplied. For this, they created the TKS resupply craft which consisted of a functional cargo block and a VA Merker return craft to carry the crew. Also launched together on a proton rocket. At the station, one docking port would be available to receive the TKS craft once the previous crew had left the station in their VA capsule. While the mole was canceled in 1969, the ALMAS program was integrated into the Salyut program and resulted in three flown space stations. It turned out that man rating the uh, VA spacecraft and the proton rocket took longer than expected. So the first phase called for the launch of the three ALMAS stations without the VA spacecraft, with the crew instead being launched separately by Soyuz rockets in a modified Soyuz spacecraft. Plans called for the first three ALMAS stations to be visited by three two-months-long expeditions. This was realized fully by two missions and partially by one. However, the initial intention of launching ALMAS and the VA spacecraft together with its crew inside would never materialize during the program, and neither would the TKS craft play its intended role as a resupply craft. The ALMAS design without the VA spacecraft would evolve into the ALMAS OPS station cores of the Salyut program. In addition to reconnaissance equipment, ALMAS was also equipped with a unique 23mm Richter rapid-fire cannon mounted on the forward belly of the station. This revolver cannon was modified from the tail gun of the Tu-22 bomber 
and was capable of a theoretical rate of fire of 1,800 to 2,000 rounds per minute. Each 168-gram or 173-gram projectile flew at a speed of 850 meters per second relative to the station. The cannon was tested at the end of the second mission by firing 20 rounds when the station was operating in uncrewed mode. To aim the cannon, which was on a fixed mount, the entire station would be turned to face the target. The Almaz series are the only known armed, crewed military spacecraft ever flown. At this point, it is important to understand that Design Bureau OKB-52, run by General Designer Chalome, designed and built the Almaz version of the space station, while Design Bureau OKB-1, run by Chief Designer Mission, designed and built the DOS scientific version of the station. In the fashion of capitalism, both the political and state leadership encouraged a competition between Chief Designer Missions, OKB-1 Design Bureau, and General Designer Chalome's OKB-52 Design Bureau to see who could get their stations into space first. In December 1972, Salyut-2 was delivered to the engineering facility at site number two, and preparations began the very first day in rush mode. In the meantime, a crew, including the commander, Havel Popovich, and flight engineer, Yuri Akturkin, prepared to fly to Salyut 2 on board a Soyuz spacecraft, which was originally scheduled for launch 10 days after the station had reached orbit. However, days before the station was ready to go, technical problems with the Soyuz spacecraft forced the postponement of the manned mission, a blessing in disguise. But at the time, the processing personnel for Salyut 2 and Baikonur had already completed irreversible operations with the Salyut and its rocket booster, and the program officials made the decision to proceed with the launch of Salyut 2. Salyut 2 was launched on April 3, 1973, beating the Skylab space station launch by a little over a month. Skylab launched on May 14, 1973. Salyut 2 used the three-stage UR-500K carrier rocket. This carrier rocket had underwent development testing with launches for the L-1 and the DOS programs. Salyut 2 was successfully inserted into orbit. The third stage of the Proton-K rocket entered orbit along with Salyut 2. On April 4th, it was cataloged in a 192 by 238 kilometer orbit inclined at 51.4 degrees. Three days 
After the launch of Salyut 2, the proton spent third stage exploded due to pressure changes within the tanks. This explosion resulted in a cloud of debris, some of which followed a similar trajectory to the station. Ten days later, this debris struck the station, damaging the hull and causing depressurization. Both solar panels were torn free, removing the ability of the station to generate power and control its attitude. Three pieces of the debris from the station were cataloged and had decayed from orbit by May 13th. The remainder of the station re-entered the atmosphere on May 28, 1973, over the Pacific Ocean. An inquiry into the failure initially determined that a fuel line had burst, burning a hole in the station. The damage from the debris collision was only discovered later. Thankfully, the station malfunctioned before the piloted vehicle could lift off to meet up with it. All right, let's move on to our next subject. The Soviet Union's uncrewed probes to Mars during the year 1973. Keep in mind, one of the key reasons for the Mars probes was competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. The window for Earth-Mars travel was not the best for 1973. There was a much more favorable launch window coming up in 1975. That was when the United States was planning to launch its Viking probe. But the Soviet Union wanted to beat the United States to Mars. You may recall, back on episode 382, I began a series on Soviet Mars probes. Perhaps you may want to listen to that episode before you listen to the continuation that I'm about to start with Mars 4 through 7. Mars 4 was one of four Soviet spacecraft of the 3MS or M73 series launched in 1973. These were quite similar to the probes used in 1971. Soviet planners were eager to preempt the American Viking missions that were planned to reach Mars in 1976, but the Soviets were limited by the less advantageous position of the planets, which meant that the Proton K Block D boosters had a limited capacity on the payloads they could launch toward Mars. The Soviets thus decided to separate the standard pair of orbiter-lander payload combinations into two separate orbiters and two separate landers for a total of four missions called Mars 4 through 7. The Mars 4 spacecraft, like all the other ones in the series 5, 6, and 7, were built by Lavochkin and carried an array of instruments to study Mars. In addition to cameras, it was equipped with radio telescopes, an infrared radiometer, 
multiple photometers, polarimeters, a magnetometer, plasma traps, an electrostatic analyzer, a gamma ray spectrometer, and a radio probe. Less than four months prior to launch, ground testing detected a major problem with the 2T312 transistors developed by the Pulsar Scientific Research Institute. These were used on all four vehicles. Apparently, because the factory that manufactured it used aluminum contacts instead of gold-plated contacts. An analysis showed that the transistor's failure rate began to increase after one and a half to two years operation, which would be just about the time when the spacecraft would reach Mars. Now, despite the roughly 50-50 odds of success, the Soviets decided to go ahead and proceed with the mission without changing out the transistors. Mars 4 was launched by a Proton-K carrier rocket, a Block D upper stage flying from Baikonur Cosmodrome, Site 81-23. The launch occurred on July 21, 1973, with the first three stages placing the spacecraft and upper stage into a low-Earth parking orbit before the Block D fired to propel Mars 4 into a heliocentric orbit bound for Mars. Mars 4 successfully left Earth orbit and headed toward Mars and accomplished a single mid-course correction on July 30, 1973. But soon... Two of the three channels of the onboard computer failed due to, you guessed it, the faulty transistors. As a result, the second mid-course correction by its main 11D425A engine could not be implemented. With no possibility for Mars orbit insertion, Mars 4 flew by the red planet at 15.34 Universal Time on February 10, 1974 at a range of 1,844 kilometers. Ground control was able to command the vehicle to turn on its TV imaging system. Two minutes prior to this point at 15.32 and 41 seconds Universal Time to begin a short photography session of the Martian surface during the flyby. The other TV camera system, known as Zufar 2SA, was never turned on due to a failure. The TV camera took 12 standard images from ranges of 1,900 to 2,100 kilometers distance over a period of six minutes. The other OMS scanner also provided two panoramas of the surface. The spacecraft eventually entered heliocentric orbit, as it still is today. Now, moving on to Mars 5. 
Mars 5 was, of course, the sister to Mars 4. Again, built by Lavochkin with the same array of instruments to study Mars that Mars 4 had. The three cameras Mars 5 carried were a 52mm Vega, a 350mm Zulfar, and a panoramic camera. Mars 5 was launched by a Proton-K carrier rocket with a Block D upper stage flying from Baikonur Cosmodrome Site 81-24. The launch occurred on July 25, 1973, just four days after Mars 4. With the first three stages placing the spacecraft and upper stage into a low Earth parking orbit, before the Block D fired to propel Mars 5 into a heliocentric orbit bound for Mars. The spacecraft performed course correction maneuvers on August 3, 1973 and February 2, 1974. Then Mars 5 successfully fired its main engine at 1544 Universal Time to enter orbit around the planet. Initial orbit parameters were 1,760 by 32,586 kilometers, with a 35-degree inclination. Soon after orbital insertion, ground controllers detected a slow depressurization of the main instrument compartment on the orbiter, probably as a result of an impact with a particle during or after orbital insertion. Calculations showed that at the current rate of air loss, the spacecraft would be operational for approximately three more weeks. The probe's original planned lifetime in Mars orbit was supposed to be three months, so scientists immediately drew up a special accelerated science program that included imaging of the surface at 100 meter resolution. Five imaging sessions on February 17th, 21st, 23rd, 25th, and 26th produced a total of 108 frames. However, only 43 were usable photographs. Both the high-resolution Vega and the survey camera Zolfar were used. Additionally, Mars 5 used the OMS scanner to take five panoramas of the surface. The last communications with Mars 5 when the final panorama was transmitted back to Earth took place on February 28, 1974, after which pressure in the spacecraft reduced below working levels. Mars 5's photos, some of which were of comparable quality to those of Mariner 9, clearly showed surface features which indicated erosion caused by free-flowing water. The first of these images taken by both the television cameras were published in the Academy of Science Journal in the fall of 1974. Among significant achievements claimed for Mars 5 was the probe's gamma-ray spectrometer measured the uranium, thorium, and potassium content 
of the surface the probe passed over and found that they were similar to igneous rocks on Earth. The exact ratios of elements varied with the age of the surface. Mars 5's infrared radiometer reported a daytime surface temperature of between minus 44 and minus 2 degrees Celsius. That's minus 47 and 28 degrees Fahrenheit. Nighttime temperatures were measured at minus 73 degrees Celsius or minus 99 degrees Fahrenheit. The vehicle was supposed to act as a data relay for the Mars 6 and Mars 7 landers, which were due to arrive in March of 1974, but was obviously unable to do so. Mars 6 was one of two combination flyby and drop off the lander style probes launched by the Soviet Union during the 1973 launch window. The landers were very similar in design to the Mars 2 and 3 landers dispatched by the Soviets in 1971. Except the spacecraft was now comprised of a flyby vehicle instead of an orbiter and a 1,000 kilogram lander. Mars 6 completed its first mid-course correction and route to Mars on August 12, 1973, but immediately a tape recorder on board failed, forcing controllers to use backup. Then, on September 3rd, there was a major failure in the telemetry system that transmitted scientific and operations data from the spacecraft. Only two channels remained operational neither of which provided the ground with any direct data on the status of the flyby vehicle systems. Controllers could only use a time-consuming playback mode for the reception of data. Ultimately, the flyby spacecraft did automatically perform all its functions, and on March 12, 1974, the lander successfully separated from its mothership at a distance of 46,000 kilometers from Mars. About four hours later, it entered the Martian atmosphere at a velocity of 5,600 meters per second. The parachute system deployed correctly at an altitude of 20 kilometers when the speed had been reduced to about 600 meters per second. And scientific instruments began to collect and transmit data to the flyby vehicle as the probe descended. The only useful data was, however, directly from the lander to Earth, and its information was rather weak and difficult to decode. It appeared that the lander was rocking back and forth under its parachute far more vigorously than expected. Nevertheless, Mars 6 returned the first direct measurements of the temperature and pressure of the Martian atmosphere as well as its chemical composition using the radio frequency mass spectrometer. The data indicated that argon made up about one-third of the Martian atmosphere. 
Moments before the expected landing, the ground lost contact with the probe. The last confirmed data was information on ignition of the soft landing engines received about two seconds before impact. Later investigation never conclusively identified a single cause of loss of contact. Probable reasons included failure of the radio system or landing in a geographically rough area. The Mars 6 flyby bus, meanwhile, collected some scientific information during its short flyby at a minimum range of 1,600 kilometers to the surface before heading into a heliocentric orbit. Mars 7 was the last of the four Soviet spacecraft sent to Mars in the 1973 launch period. Although it arrived at Mars prior to Mars 6, on its way to Mars, the spacecraft performed a single mid-course correction on August 16, 1973. En route to Mars, there were failures in the communication systems and controllers were forced to maintain contact via the only remaining radio communications complex. On March 9, 1974, the flyby spacecraft ordered the lander capsule to separate for its entry into the Martian atmosphere. Although the lander initially refused to accept the command to separate, it eventually did. Ultimately, the lander's main retro rocket engine failed to fire to initiate entry into the Martian atmosphere. As a result, the lander flew by the planet at a range of 1,300 kilometers and eventually entered heliocentric orbit. The flyby probe did, however, manage to collect data during its encounter with the red planet while contact was maintained until March 25, 1974. Both the failures of Mars 4, the computer failure, and Mars 7, the retro rocket ignition failure, were probably due to the faulty transistors installed in the circuits of the onboard computer which were detected prior to launch. Data from Mars 7 was still being analyzed as late as 2003 when researchers published results based on data collected by the KM-73 Cosmic Ray Detector in September 1973 en route to Mars. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 434 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Salute 2, Mars 4, 5, 6, and 7, and of course, the Tang Ceremony 
for 11 years of operation. Our next episode should be released on or about Saturday, March 16th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email in the text box on the right side of the page. The 2024 donors page is up and ready for your inspection. Please verify that we have your name on the page at the right level with the correct number of longevity emojis. If we don't, email us at spacerockethistory at gmail.com and we will fix it. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 253 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. You have to be, you make sure you put in the word archive. And also, I want to remind you that uh, Google has said that it's going to end its uh, Google podcast platform. So that's coming up. So uh, you need to look for uh, another uh, platform to handle your own, handle your podcast if you're using Google podcast. Okay. If you'd like, you may follow me on Twitter. Uh, now called X. My handle is at Space Rocket Hist. You can also follow me at Facebook and at Patreon by looking at patreon.com slash Space Rocket History. As always, I would like to apologize for my mispronunciation and I had a few afterthoughts. Then we'll get to the Tang ceremony. Well, I did not want to spend a lot of time on Salute 2 since it was a failure. I thought it would be interesting to cover it since we just finished covering Skylab. Isn't it funny how things work, militarily speaking? The United States in the early 60s there was thinking that we could grab the high ground with the mole, which would in turn force the Soviets to counter us with Almaz. And Almaz actually had a gun. (laughs) Who was that guy that said, uh, can't we all just get along? <laughs> I want to I wanna say it was Rodney King, but I'm not, I'm not sure. <clears throat> anyway, competition is good, but not to the point of killing each other. Even the Soviets endorsed competition between their design bureaus and chief designers. Not a very communist way of doing things, was it? But... It proved effective. I can also just about, just about guarantee you that the United States would not have gone to the moon in 1969 if it weren't for the competition with the Soviets. We pushed each other, and it turned out mostly to our mutual advantage. Did you know that the uh, Chalomi's Merkur spacecraft that he was going to use for the Almaz was supposed to be reusable for 10 times, 10 flights, you could reuse the thing. Now that was an idea ahead of its time. Of course, the Soviets didn't accomplish that, but I thought about SpaceX when I read that and what a good idea that was. I wonder if they got it from him. I don't know. The Soviets eventually sent up about 15 Mars probes. I think it was around 15 Mars probes. 
And although Mars 4 through 7 were mostly failures, you do have to admire the determination. All right, I believe it's about time for the Tang Ceremony. So, if you're able to participate, please pause and go get your Tang. We will wait here for you. Okay, we're back with Mrs. SRH, and we are ready for the 11 Years of Space Rocket History podcast Tang Ceremony. We're celebrating that today. I have Mrs. SRH. Say hello, Mrs. SRH. Hi, everyone. Can you believe it? 11 years. Oh, wow. Yes, 11 years. It's difficult to believe. I didn't expect it to go this long. I really didn't. Well, how much longer do you think you'll go? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Mrs. SRH. (laughs) I don't know how much longer I will go, but the question comes up every year, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) And and sometimes in emails. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if some people want me to stop. I think some people have gone so far as say, you know, it would be a good stopping point right here. So, yeah. I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm not getting a hint or something like that. But I figure if, if uh, they're tired of it, they won't listen, so it won't matter. So, anyway, uh, I, I have a goal, Mrs. SRH. Oh, please tell. Yes. <laughs> my, my goal, you know, I had goals in the past. You know, I wanted to get, remember, I wanted to just get it to uh, the moon landing. Mm, yeah. I wanted to get it to the moon landing. And then I wanted to get to Apollo 13. And then I wanted to finish the moon landings. Oh, definitely, yeah. And then I wanted to go through Skylab and get through that. So I've got through Skylab. So the one key goal I can think of now is to make it to uh, Apollo Soyuz, to see if I can get Apollo Soyuz recorded. So that happened in 1975. Uh, we've got some uh, time before that would get here because we have some uh, we have a Salyut mission that's going to take some time, I know, and there'll be something else that'll take some time too. So um, I guess my uh, long-range goal is to reach the Apollo Soyuz. Okay, are we prepared for the Tang ceremony? Yes, yes. we are. Let me unscrew the the plastic container of tang at home feel free to unscrew your plastic container of tang looks like it might be a touch chunky yes it is a touch chunky in there (laughs) i think the boys have put wet spoons in the tang (laughs) i don't doubt it (laughs) now we already have our water poured in the glass. So we each got a cup here with water in it. Mrs. SRH is breaking up a few chunks in the tank. Looks like a, a storm on Mars over here. <laughs> oh, that's a big, oh my goodness, that's a big. <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah, go ahead, put it in. Oh my goodness. Let me have that one there. <laughs> oh wow, that was a big chunk. <laughs> the grandsons really love this stuff. Yes, I need to convince them <laughs> to use a dry spoon. I know. 
<laughs> I can't quite catch them when I see it. I'm like, uh-oh, too late. Uh, okay, we got this. Now you stirring up yours. Okay. <laughs> I'm about to breathe this stuff. Let me put the cap on it before we have a... I get it down my throat. I remember those commercials about Tang. Yeah. Oh, yes. Tang is the choice of astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> well, some astronauts. <laughs> Not them all. All right. Uh, you got yours ready? Yes, I Okay. Do. To 11 years of Space Rocket History podcast. Cheers. Cheers, everybody. Mm. I forgot how good it tastes. Delicious. And tangy. <laughs> oh, that was That's good. Yeah, that was good stuff there. <laughs> I, I sincerely say it's good, yes. As it is, it's good. It's good. It's good. I wonder if I could get a Tang sponsorship or something like that. That would be pretty nice, wouldn't it? See if the good folks at Tang <laughs> will sponsor me. <laughs> okay. I think that concludes the ceremony until next year. If we make it that far. I think we'll make I hope we'll make it that far. I don't know if we're gonna make it out of this week, but <laughs> it's been a rough year. <laughs> yeah, it has. It's been a rough year. I've been sick on and on since Thanksgiving. I know. I can't remember when you've been so sick. This has really been a tough year. It, it has. Since Thanksgiving, it's been a, a tough year. But, uh, okay. We'll let everybody complete their tying ceremony. Thank you for participating in the ceremony with us. Okay. Over the past fortnight, we received six new donations and pledges. I would like to thank Ryan M. from Michigan, who donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Agnes B. from Australia donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned a Nova emoji. Cameron B. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned a space communications dish emoji. Christopher L. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned a space communications dish emoji. Oleg S. from Lower Saxony donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. And Chris K. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Patreon is now down to 220. That is two below what we had last time in Patreon. Hopefully we'll get at least one of those back. Our total unique donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and Checks, for 2024 have reached 251 with a goal of reaching 400 for by the end of the year. So if you're enjoying this podcast that has been running now for over 11 years without commercial interruptions and uh, you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link or you can donate by check or you can also donate on Venmo or Zelle by using my email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. And by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is an excellent time to complete it. Today, I would like to give a shout out to all those who promoted 
to the Nova longevity emoji for eight years of financial support. And they are David B., Robert E., Zabig New M., Ryan L., Peter M., Joseph S., Mark U., Alan M., Jeremy S., Igor P., Magnus B., Kevin H., Stephen L., Andrew B., Jacob B., Phoebe D., Jake M., Greg R., Joseph D., Paul G., Eric G., Kevin P., Make M., Martin R., Robert, Roy B., Karsten E., Peter P., Peter B., Marie D., Neil F., Lincoln J., Luke, Josh, and Zach J., Adam P., Mark U. Thank you so much for eight years of support. We really appreciate it. If you are unable to support financially, it would help if you could retweet my post on Twitter or on Facebook uh, or give me a uh, five-star rating on your favorite podcatcher, wherever you listen. All right, now it is my distinct pleasure to hand it over to Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. I hope you got to enjoy some tang with us. It's always fun to do that together. All right, the winner for this episode, you know the drill. You will get the choice of the SRH archive magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator I selected, Paul Glaser. Paul Glaser, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all who have contributed thus far in 2024. My sources for this episode were NASA, Beyond Earth, A Chronicle of Deep Space Exploration, 1958-2016 through 2016 by Asif A. Sadiq, Rockets and People by Boris Chertok, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, Britannica website, Space Facts website, RussiaSpaceWeb.com, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all I have for this episode. We will try to have episode 435 posted on or about March 16th. So long for now.